Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 155 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for tuning in for another excellent interview episode where we track down the leading authorities on all things fascinating and flavorful so that we can share their secrets with you. As I mentioned a few weeks back in our 2020 second half preview episode, I'm on this Ahabian quest to figure out one of the most ubiquitous cocktails on the planet, the Bloody Mary. In this series that we're calling Breaking Bloody, we'll be going narrow and deep on certain aspects of this drink, from its history to its ingredients to its complete domination of the brunch scene. For this inaugural episode, I decided to start with the fruit that makes the Bloody Mary possible in the first place, the tomato. To help us understand how this New World crop took the culinary and agricultural world by storm, I enlisted the help of Craig LeHoulier, author of the book Epic Tomatoes and Unabashed Tomato Tinkerer with the Greenest of Thumbs. But before we get nerdy about this nifty nightshade, let's pull over for a second so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Cape Cod. Also known as the Cape Codder, or simply a vodka cranberry, this drink emerged in the middle of the 20th century when vodka took the US by storm. To make it, you'll need two ounces of your favorite vodka and four to eight ounces of cranberry juice. That's it. This is one of your quick and dirty built cocktails, and if there's one thing you need to know, it's the order in which you build it. First, you of course take your glass, in this case a highball or a large rocks glass, fill it with ice, then add your booze, and then top it off with your mixer. See, if you do it the other way around, you'll need to stir because the booze will float on top of the cranberry juice. But by building your drink in the correct order, you can really embrace the no tools necessary freedom of the Cape Cod cocktail. Garnish-wise, a lime wheel is traditional here, but I could also see a few fresh cranberries skewered on a cocktail pick as a nice homage to the boggy berry to which the Cape Cod owes its name and flavor. The Cape Cod is a tangy, refreshing way to beat the heat without breaking a sweat with your cocktail shaker, and if you're a lazy home bartender like I am, you should always keep a little vodka and cran on hand. So, now that you're all fueled up, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this lively, in-depth discussion with tomato expert Craig LeHoulier, some of the topics we discuss include the history of the tomato, from its origins in the Americas to its domination of the European culinary scene to its current commodity status at the supermarket, how Craig left the pharma industry to pursue his keen interest in gardening, which led to a home garden bursting with forgotten tomato varieties and a passion for flavor. The story of the Seed Savers Exchange and how heirloom plants were saved from the verge of the void. What makes an heirloom plant different from a hybrid plant? Spoiler alert, it's not as simple as it might seem. How Craig thinks about the flavor attributes and culinary applications of different tomato varieties. The science and history of tomato juice and how it plays into the story of the Bloody Mary. 
the crazy and largely untapped possibilities for scrambling our concept of what a Bloody Mary is and what it could be, how the Cherokee Purple Tomato got its name, and much, much more. This was one of those really special interviews where we really got into a flow. Craig is just so passionate about gardening, heirloom seeds, and flavor, and I learned a ton listening to his stories and working with him to really dissect this key Bloody Mary ingredient. Keep your eye on the Modern Bar Cart Instagram account in the week following the launch of this episode where we'll be giving away a signed copy of Craig's book, Epic Tomatoes, so that one of our lucky followers can use it to transform their home garden into a tomato oasis. And with that, let's get our hands dirty with the tomato man himself, Craig Lehulier. Craig, thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. This is a real treat for me. Yeah. So let's start off by just uh, for our listeners explaining who you are and what you do. Oh, gosh. Well, Craig LaHoulier uh, recently moved to Hendersonville, North Carolina after 28 years in hot, crowded, humid Raleigh. We are now in less crowded, less hot, less humid Hendersonville. So it's all good. Uh, chemist by training, gardener for life. Um, I was unceremoniously but joyfully let go from a 25-year career in a pharma company in my mid-50s and said, great, I'm done with you guys anyway. And ever since, um, uh, writing about tomatoes, growing tomatoes, been the tomato advisor to the Seed Savers Exchange for um, many, many years. And it's just one of those things where my wife and I will be looking at each other and go, this is a really interesting, somewhat weird thing you've got yourself involved in. I'm like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And uh, to boot, you are also an author, uh, the author of the uh, epically named book, Epic Tomatoes. Um, so we're going to be talking uh, during this interview uh, about, of course, the book about, of course, tomatoes. And uh, just to remind some of our listeners, the reason why we're doing this is because uh, I have sort of an Ahabian situation here where um, I'm, I'm sort of on a quest during these strange times to figure out the secrets to the perfect Bloody Mary. Uh, and so part of that is obviously taking some of the ingredients in said beverage and breaking them down and trying to learn as much about those individual ingredients as possible before trying to figure out the best way to synthesize them. So uh, that is why we sought you out. I googled tomato expert and you were the first Google result uh, and uh, here we are. So uh, I, I'm going to start us off here by uh, asking a question that would seem to most people to be a non sequitur and that question is what? is a tomato? A tomato is botanically a fruit. It's essentially the swelled ovary of Solanum like a persicon. Um, it is used culinarily most often as a vegetable, of course. Um, one of the things it has is that umami, that uh, savory flavor element to it. It is wildly popular. And a lot of that is the onset of the Seed Savers Exchange and the saving of heirlooms and the telling of stories in the mid-70s. But it is probably, of all of the crops you can think of, the one that has the most morphological, you know, visual shape, size, colors, and flavor diversity. And one of the reasons I'm really looking forward to getting into this with you with the level we're going to is I'm not really familiar how often the various types of flavors of tomatoes have been plumbed 
to apply to the perfect Bloody Mary. So I'm going to be exploring some of this with you and actually thinking about some of this for the very first time. So we we may start something here, which is great. <laughs> I hope we do. I hope we do. So um, so tomato is a fruit. I, I think what we're going to run into here is uh, a few of those little facts that you hear people uh, throw out like at cocktail parties that are usually more annoying than they are um, like useful. So, oh, to, did you know that tomatoes are fruits? Well, okay, <laughs> we've all heard that one. Um, now, I, I, I'm not quite sure if, if you can take us through some of the uh, the history of the tomato, right? Because, you know, all right, we've got we've got the fact that this thing is, is a fruit. We're going to be talking a little bit about the acidity down the line here as we get a little bit more in the weeds. Now, my question is, you know, tomatoes are ubiquitous in grocery stores and supermarkets today. Uh, I imagine that wasn't always the case. Um, can, can you walk us through a little bit of how tomatoes kind of got developed and then subsequently commodified for our consumption? Because I think that will eventually take us a little bit more in depth about terms like heirloom, for example, and how those relate to, you know, the, the commodity that is tomato. Sure. And I think I love the way you stated it. And I would have put quotes around the words um, grocery store tomato, because whether an actual grocery store tomato, not to run the risk of all grocery store managers everywhere, um, those who have grown their tomatoes or bought them at farmer's markets and those who have purchased them at the grocery store, now there may, there may not be two of the same named object that have such a distinct difference. So, so we'll go back to few thousand years ago to the coast of South America or Central America, where the first tomato was probably a tiny little red berry. So again, that, that analogy to the fruit, the size of a pea. Um, the Aztecs, the Incas, the early indigenous uh, peoples worked on them. Mutations happen over time. Cross-pollination occurs. They're very happy, I'm sure, with the tomato. Cuisines were built around it back then. And then, of course, the very unfortunate event of Cortez coming in, conquering the tomato is one of the things that actually made its trip to Europe in the 1580s. And then Europe could begin not only its love affair with the tomato, but also looking at different types. So over time, it evolved from this pea-type tomato to these big, ugly, lumpy, creased things that were delicious. Now, the story with America actually doesn't start until the mid-1850s. And if you were to look at a seed catalog from 1840, and I actually have the seed catalog, it would list 20 turnips and 20 summer squash and one tomato with no description. Part of the reason for this is American seed companies hadn't gotten their hands on them. And we all know about America and their desire to advertise and to sell and to popularize and be competitive with each other. Now, what's most interesting about this um, is that America thought tomatoes were poisonous in the mid-1800s. Now, whether this is because tomatoes being acidic reacted with pewter dinnerware, and then all of a sudden people were getting sick, whether people went out and washed them with water that the cows had been peeing in or something like that, and so you get coliform bacteria mixed in, or just that funky smell or the relationship to the Belladonna family. And so there are four possible reasons why we didn't like tomatoes, but they caught on. And it's silly when you think about it, because America was populated by a lot of Europeans and such, and they were eating them there. Why not here? So starting from about 1860, the numbers of tomatoes that you could get from catalogs grew from maybe five or 10, the vast majority red, um, 
Interestingly, the little yellow pear, the little red pear, the little yellow and red cherries have been known for hundreds of years. But the big guys, they took a long time. And we here now in 2020 can choose from up to 15,000 different types of tomatoes to grow. That is a real testament to the seed service exchange getting going, realizing where we're losing our genetic heritage and stimulating this whole collection of seed savers to start collecting the histories and telling the stories. And you know, I have very few red tomatoes in my garden because I much prefer pinks and purples and browns and greens and whites. And that's where, and there's no correlation between the color and the flavor. Each tomato variety is like us. They have different genes. They have different flavors, different scents, anywhere from so tongue tingling acidic that you have to take a Maalox afterwards to so sweet that if your eyes were closed, you're eating a peach. And this, I think, is the area to really delve into because I don't know how, if anybody has ever looked at the types of tomato juice by variety and the nature of them and applied them to a margarita to create a whole series of different nuanced margaritas. Yeah, Bloody Marys. Um. <laughs> what am I saying? Or Bloody Marys. I don't. I, as I'll, as you'll, I'll tell you soon. I'm really not a fan of margaritas, but but Bloody Marys I can do. So uh, yes, 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 yes. Um, so I don't know. To me, this is a whole area that's fertile for exploration. Um, it will involve those who grow heirloom tomatoes. It will grow home gardeners who like to go out there with the Victoriana strainer and turn their tomatoes into juice and then start playing. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, a few things that I really like about what you're saying uh, about the history of the tomato. One of them is the fact that, you know, we take so much of our cuisine for granted. And part of that is, you know, it, in, in part, the tomato and the potato it took similar routes. You know, we, we think of potatoes as being hugely important to Irish cuisine, Eastern European or Slavic cuisine, for example. Yes. Um, Pretty much everything in the, the Polish half of my heritage involves a potato somewhere down the line. Uh, and we also associate tomatoes heavily with Italian cuisine. Yeah. So how could it be that this is such a new invention and that most of us are unaware of it? So that just trips my trigger because I, I, I love uh, moments either in history and science uh, in everyday things that cause you to step back and say, hmm, well, maybe I shouldn't just gloss over this. Maybe I should dig a little deeper. So that that's great. Uh, and, and I also think too, um, that the just sheer variety of tomatoes out there and, and the way that they have, as you mentioned, kind of developed these different genomic properties that mm. yield such varied phenotypes mm. that, you know, the phenotype being the physical expression of a yeah. genome to me, it's it's like your, your comparison with a human personality is, is so cool because uh, one of the projects that I've undergone since the quarantine situation has started is um, I actually started uh, some gardening projects here in D.C. I got some of these um, those cow troughs, for yeah. lack of a better term. We filled them with, you know, soil and, and drainage. And so I've got literally less than 10 feet behind me here behind these shades. I have cucumbers, I have yeah. tomatoes, basil, dill, and I have 20 super hot chili pepper plants that are lining the fence. Yeah. Uh, and it's just so neat to, to walk. I walk up to these different peppers, especially, and they're just acting so different from yeah. one another. And that that's so cool. Endlessly fascinating. And as a scientist background, some people see a garden, I see a laboratory. 
So when I go out there for three, four, five, six hours every day, I am looking at leaves, leaf color, leaf shape, how fuzzy they are, the flowers. The, and, and it's like any other hobby, I think, where it's like an onion and you can just stay on the surface where the peel is and it's pretty boring. Or you can just peel away toward the middle and find layers of fascination. And, uh, you know, if you think about all the different crops we can grow, tomatoes and perhaps apples are the two most morphologically and flavor diverse. Um, and the bonus of tomatoes are they're easy, relatively easy to grow. It's really easy to save seeds and you can become a complete nincompoop like me and amass a collection that's far larger than you can ever grow out because some of us are seekers, right? We, we, may, we may taste something we love, and we, but we don't stop there. We go, but I may taste something I love even more. So I'm just gonna keep going and I'm gonna keep going. Indeed, indeed. Well, this sounds like a good point in the interview to talk a little bit about your book, Epic Tomatoes, because uh, obviously I think when you undertake a project like that, when you've got your hobby, then it turns into a passion or an obsession. And then you are sort of forced by the project of the book to organize or structure that obsession in a way that might be a little bit different than the way you actually experience it as you walk through your garden, you know, touching the fuzzy leaves. Uh, <laughs> you learn you learn something. So what, what can you tell us about the process of writing the book Epic Tomatoes and um, maybe just uh, explain for folks who are interested out there how it's structured, et cetera? Sure. Um, so Epic Tomatoes was born out of some luck. Um, you know, being on occasional broadcasts with Nikki Jabor up in Canada and her having an editor and that editor at Story Publishing says, we need a tomato book in our portfolio, Nikki. Do you know anybody who can help? So Nikki put the, the editor, Carlina, to me. But really, it was also um, input from my wife over the years. You need to write your book because I'm one of these people that give a lot of information away. And, and my wife, who been married 40 years. She loves me dearly. She's like, I really want to see you get your due for all of the work you put into this. But what I told her was I, I had my day job. I was busy. And you can't just say, I am now going to write a book. You have to get your mind clear. And it has to be time because it is a commitment, sometimes a daily commitment over a period of time. So I was contacted. I said yes immediately. And really, for me, writing the book was like just, I, I'm a very fast typer. I can do 120 words a minute not looking. So I just sat down on a laptop and poured my brain out. But that became the easy parts of the book. And in every book, there are the chapters that are not what floats your boat. So I love the stories and the colors and the flavors. But you have to write about diseases. You have to write about fertilizing. So I did a lot of research and all of that. How it's laid out, and I, you know, when you said initially um, me walking through the garden, feeling my fuzzy leaves, I've never, I don't have a degree in writing. I've never really written except for scientific papers. So I thought I want to write this book as if I was taking someone through my garden um, to tell them what I'm growing and to excite them about the plants I'm growing and show pictures of them and demystify gardening and growing tomatoes. So at the end of the day, everybody feels like this is something I can do. Um, I have no problem with the websites that have all the super expensive gardening equipment and the Martha Stewart approach. That's not the type of gardeners that I'm trying to reach because growing something, what is it? Seeds or plants and water and a little fertilizer and a little dirt and a little sun and a little care should be as simple as that. 
And um, if that comes across in the book, that somebody is taking a walk with me through the garden and we're having a discussion and it's not intimidating and it seems doable, then that is my mission accomplished. And uh, after it being out for five years, I'm absolutely delighted with the, the fact it's out there, the fact that all of these stories are now told. People who have sent me all of these great varieties over the years, even Cherokee Purple, I get to name that tomato back in 1990. That is the luckiest one of the, aside from meeting my wife, getting to name Cherokee Purple was probably the luckiest, most serendipitous moment of my entire life. Um, so it has been a hobby that has just repaid me, not monetarily, because I really, that's not why I do this, but in terms of the satisfaction of doing something I love and helping other people to love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, it's also a beautiful book. Uh, I think one of the things that comes across is the variety and the color and the texture of, you know, when you walk through a garden, it's all texture. It's texture to the point where you have to hunt for the fruit, right? Uh, and and the hunt for the fruit, you know, the, the all of a sudden, you know, when when a tomato, for example, turns from a green that's like the green of the leaves of the plant to a color that is very different from that, you know, it's a revelation. I woke up this morning and I went out and looked at the peppers, and I have my first purple ghost. Yes, and it is very purple, and it was not there yesterday. Uh, and so I, I just love that texture, and I love that you were also to, able to incorporate some of the uh, the striking photography with that because, you know, uh, I, I think this is one of those situations where seeing is believing, uh, especially because of our experience sort of being homogenized at the supermarket. Yeah, and story really did make the book beautiful because really what I did was I entertained many visits from two photographers over two summers, and I had to explain to my publisher and editor um, when you send Stephen out next Tuesday, it doesn't mean all 55 varieties will be perfectly ripe that day. So we had some of this education that it's like the Palmas on wine thing. You know, we will have no wine before it's time. We will have no ripe tomato until that damn thing is ready to turn ripe. Um, so there was mailing tomatoes back and forth. There was visiting where, <laughs> warehouses with tomatoes to be photographed. But also, when I look at those tomatoes, when I look at the plants in my garden, I also visualize the letters of the people who sent me those seeds. So to me, an heirloom garden is a living history. But what you just said that I love is that every day, every day, something is different. And a garden gives you an opportunity to get excited about jumping out of bed to see what's happening every day from the first seed you plant until the last fruit that you harvest. And not many hobbies just continually envelop your senses like uh, a great garden does. Yeah, totally. Wow. So <laughs> talk to talk to me about heirloom because yeah. this is a this is something that I feel like most people have heard of. Uh, I think what we're familiar with, if you have my level of knowledge, then you are familiar with the fact that heirloom tomatoes are not as symmetrical, perhaps, as the fruit that is uh, stacked in pyramids <laughs> at the supermarket. <laughs> Uh, they are oftentimes different colors. Uh, a tomato that is an heirloom might have different splotches of color on it. Mm -hmm. And from a culinary perspective, I think everyone is on the same page generally that heirlooms are more delicious than supermarket tomatoes, but I don't know that we're all on the same page about why that might be. So can you talk to me about the uh, the seed savers exchange yeah. and then also um, kind of the rise of heirloom? Because I think in the tomato world, aside from your book being published, that is probably one of the bigger breaking trends of the last several decades. Yeah. So um, in 1975, a fellow who was living in 
name is already named Kent Wheely, was very concerned about the disappearance of non-hybrid vegetables varieties. They were disappearing from catalogs because everybody was rushing to the latest hybrid because they looked nice on the cover. And the scare tactics used, if you don't grow hybrids, your garden will die of disease. But what's most concerning um, about all of this is that people were really just um, letting them elderly families that were keeping seeds from generations were passing away and the seeds were being eaten by mice in their, in their cellars. And the, the trigger was Kent's um, wife, Diane, had grandparents that came over from Europe and they had this wonderful tomato and a bean and a morning glory. And Kent thought, if we, didn't, if we don't set up a mechanism by which we can share and trade and keep these seeds going, they'll all be gone. So that started in 1975 and really has led to the growth of many smaller seed companies, the whole, the whole um, love of seed saving. So an heirloom is an, a hybrid cannot be an heirloom because if you save seeds from a hybrid, you get mom, dad, all the little cousins in between, but you will not get what you planted. So everybody loves sun gold. I love sun gold. It's a hybrid. If I save seeds from it, God knows what I'm going to get. An, an heirloom is considered an open pollinated variety. Open pollinated means it's genetically stable. So if I grow a Cherokee purple, I will get a Cherokee purple. Heirloom itself has been a term that's been much abused. Um, restaurants pay a, charge a fortune for heirloom tomato plates. And what's on that plate? Sun gold, big beef, and green zebra, none of which are heirlooms. They're all recent creations. I really like to use for tomatoes a cutoff date of about 1950 or before. Because 1949 is when Burpee created and released Big Boy. That was the tomato that revolutionized tomato growing. It was a hybrid. And everybody, all companies stopped developing non-hybrids after that. So, yes, most heirlooms have a story. They trace back to a person. Um, the reason they are so diverse in color and shape and size is because over time mutations have happened and bees have visited flowers and farmers have noticed these odd varieties popping up and they've loved them and saved seeds from them. So really, there's no genetic engineering. There's no GMOs. This is just nature. Nature has done its thing over hundreds of years and created a great diversity of varieties. And it's been up to the clever and creative and observing observant gardeners and farmers to save seeds for them and then slap names on them and allow us to grow them to this day. And the reason they're so delicious is a company has not bred them to be machine harvested and dumped in a train car and gassed with ethylene and stacked like a pyramid at the grocery store for two months without losing any of its integrity, never had any flavor to begin with, didn't develop much over time. So home garden grown or a farmer's market purchased heirloom tomatoes are never going to be the type that you buy and keep for a week. They're the type you bring home, you slice them up within a few days, you never put them in your refrigerator, and you just love them for what they are. It's the epitome of seasonal eating, in, in my opinion. Just like strawberries come in, you gouge yourself on them, and then you're done. Blueberries, tomatoes the same way. They come in, you get two or three months, eat as many as you can, and then go for your canned tomatoes, the tomato juice that you can. Dehydrate some, throw some in the freezer, but oh, don't go buy those hard, tasteless things and think that they have any real value to the food that you're using them in. Again, I'm going to yeah. make lots of enemies from that statement, but I'm, I'm a seasonal eater. I'm, a, I'm a, food, a little bit of a food snob in terms of why can't we tantalize our taste buds with the best stuff possible? Why compromise? Right. 
Right. And the stuff that's around us at the moment anyway, you know, that's, uh, I, I, I agree with that. Um, I, I, I like these little projects, uh, just, uh, this week, my mom went out and she went to a black raspberry patch, uh, that's been growing by our driveway for decades. And she harvested a couple of quarts of those and, uh, we're making a homemade, uh, black, black raspberry liqueur. Uh, sort of remotely. It's our little like remote mother son project. We did it a couple years ago. We're doing it again this year. And I just, I love it um, yeah. because I walked by that, uh, that patch of black raspberries as a kid mm-hmm. on my way home from wherever I was that, that summer day. And every time you walk by, you pluck off a few, you eat them and there's nothing better. So um, I agree with the seasonal eating aspect. Um, now I, I did want to return to a couple things that you mentioned, because I think they're interesting points. Mm-hmm. I want to make a speculation. And then before before we move on, I want to return a little bit to uh, the idea of, of the hybrid because I, mm-hmm. I think it's not quite clear in my head, uh, and I, I just I have I think we can maybe clarify it just a little bit. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so Burpee, yeah, Burpee is this company still in existence today? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're looking uh, for uh, you know seeds. Mm-hmm. It, Type it into Google. I bet Burpee is going to have both a paid ad and is going to show up pretty yep. close to the top of the results. So Burpee, you could call you you could think of them as the Walmart of seeds, or you know something like that. One of the great historical seed companies, one of the few that's still around. You know, you had Mall, you had Salzer, you had Henderson. These were great seed companies in the 1880 to 1900. But over time, you know, consolidation and things like that. But what happens with a hybrid is what Burpee found is they took a parent, two parents. They found that pollen from a variety applied to the flowers of another variety. And then the tomato forms and you save seeds from that and plant it. And the quality of what they got was superior to either parent. And that is the hybrid. The reason hybrids cost more is somewhere in a greenhouse around the world, somebody is doing a handmade cross between two varieties that are patented and kept secret. So I I talked about sun gold a little while ago. Somewhere in Japan, somebody has the father plants that lead to sun gold and the mother plants. And they're taking the pollen from the fathers and they're applying them to the flowers and the females. Every time a tomato forms, they let it ripen. They save those seeds and those seeds from that handmade cross end up at the packet. So that's why uh, a non-hybrid variety may be two, 250 a packet. A hybrid variety could be three or four or five or six dollars a packet. You're actually paying a little bit. Now, what's really interesting, though, flip that around, that two or three dollar packet of an open pollinated variety, you can grow, enjoy it, and save seeds from it. That five or six dollar packet of a hybrid, you grow it, but then if you run out, you have to go and buy the seeds again. Now, that's fine, but let's say a lot of people develop this love of some of the hybrid varieties and the company can rip them off the market anytime they want and they will then cease to exist. So there are great hybrids. Lemon Boy is great. Whopper, Big Beef, Better Boy. Um, I, I am not an heirloom or open pollinated purist. My view is there's so many great tomatoes out there. You should do a lot of growing, a lot of tasting, and a lot of seeking. And those that bring a smile to your face and grow well in your garden, those are the ones you should grow. And uh, the variety that we have open to us right now is just stunning. 
Yeah. Now, my sort of ignorant of science question about hybrids versus heirlooms would be this. So, you know, you're, you're explaining pretty clearly this process, um, scientific, you know, mm -hmm. you've got a gentleman or a lady in a greenhouse somewhere cross pollinating from a mother plant to a father plant that creates just as, you know, in human reproduction, you get half and half and that suddenly you've got this child that is completely unique from its parents. That would be the hybrid. Mm -hmm. Now, my question is, if you're planting an heirloom tomato garden and you have two plants outside and you've got the bee that lands on father plant and the bee that lands on mother plant and does this pollination, now how come that same hybridization doesn't occur with heirloom seeds or does it and I'm just misunderstanding? Uh, what it is, is all down to the unique structure of the tomato flower that has male and female parts on the same body. So 90% of the time, a tomato variety pollinates itself upon opening. And if the bees do visit a neighboring variety and then buzz a different variety, you very, very well, if the bee times it just right, save seeds from that growing out and you realize, oh my gosh, this isn't what I had. Now, what creative gardeners do or curious gardeners like me is you every now and then you grow a whole bunch of a variety and realize something is not what it should be. And then you look at your map and you realize, ha ha, the bees applied pollen from variety A and put it onto this. I now I'm growing a hybrid, which means if I save seeds from that, that opens the world for me and creates new, you can create new varieties. That's how we did our dwarf tomato breeding project is we did intentional hybridization and then save seeds from the hybrid and then worked for up to eight generations to separate out a very new variety that we then stabilize and give to a seed company. So almost every weirdly colored tomato out there probably have started with an accidental visit from a bee to create something unique. And then it's just over time, people have grown it enough to select out what they don't want. Um, but that's an extremely insightful and important question. And uh, it blurs the lines a little bit. And it's what makes me realize you can't really be one of these people that say hybrids yes or hybrids no heirlooms yes or heirlooms no, because they're all part of the same process in a way. And every heirloom right. began with a hybrid, probably somewhere along the line, except it wasn't a man or a woman. It was probably a bee. <laughs> but, so what, oh, but, the bees. But this is an important point, though, because a lot of people will say, Craig, you've got 129 plants in your garden. They're all pretty close. What do you do to prevent them from cross-pollinating? I save seeds from the very first or second cluster low down on the plant because when it's cool in the spring the bees typically are not out yet and they're certainly not interested in those tomato flowers and by doing that i can get to 96 to 98 percent purity now if i were to go out and do my seed saving in the middle of july or august when it's hot that would drop to 70 75 percent and i've had all and i'd have a whole selection of experiments that I would be growing out. Some of which would be great. Some of which would be like, this isn't what I wanted. <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. Yeah. So the bees can yeah. be our friend and people get confused about that. Well, I'm worried about the honeybees. If I don't have bees, I want to have tomatoes. Well, if the honeybees are in trouble, you'll have tomatoes, but you won't have squash or cucumbers or melons or those varieties where the male and female flowers on the plant are in different parts of the plant. And the bees actually have to pick up the pollen and deliver it from the male to the female. But tomatoes, peppers, eggplant, beans, and peas are actually not dependent on bees to do the pollination. That is an incredibly fun fact. I did not know that. <laughs>
So yeah, I mean, I, and I love that answer because I, it it does completely settle things in my head, right? I you know the my the way I was going to phrase the question about the uh, hybridization of, of heirlooms is like, well, it seems like. Uh, you know, if we, if we know anything about science and genetic mutation, it's like this stuff is going to happen anyway. So how do we keep it pure? So I, I love the I love the explanation that you gave. I loved your little hack for taking the tomatoes early in the season. Uh, I think these are all incredibly useful. And at the end of the day, it just boils down to what are you optimizing for? Uh, yeah. So I, I love that. And when people some sometimes at my talks, they'll be really concerned. I don't want to grow a GMO tomato. This purple tomato must be GMO. And what I tell them is, number one, we are all GMOs. Our parents all had sex somewhere along the way. Number two, that's not the proper term. It's genetically engineered tomato. That's when you take the gene of a blueberry and you stick it into a tomato. There are none of those out there. Every tomato we can buy has been generated just like Gregor Mendel, the monk did. He, you know, he sat with his peas and crossed things. The bees do or we do. So uh, people can actually grow tomatoes if they're really worried about the GMO thing. They have nothing to worry about. They just can't right, buy right. those types. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a great segue into um, a, the, a slight little tributary in this conversation, which is going to lead us to eventually the tomato juice, which is mm -hmm. why we're here. Um, are, are there different types or I guess categories of tomatoes out there? Uh, and I'm, I guess I'm, I, I'll leave it as bluntly as that because I'm not quite sure if you put a, if you brought me to your garden and said, Hey, organize all these tomatoes for me by type. I don't know if I would do it by size, by shape, by color. Right. So like, I don't know yeah. if any of these categories have been sort of officially sanctioned by whatever governing body <laughs> rules on tomato term terms. Uh, but, uh, what do you think? So, um, a lot of times people will designate tomatoes by the number of seed cells or locules that they have in the inside. So if you cut a cherry tomato open, Usually there's two halves, two little half moons of seeds in there. I call cherry tomatoes a bag of water and seeds, really. They're, there's not much meat to them. They're fun to pop in your mouth, put on pizzas, put on salads. As, um, as the tomato started going through its uh, mutation changes, it started adding locules, picking up size, and becoming more complex in size. The flowers got bigger, all the way up to the beefsteak tomato. And that term was actually generated in a seed catalog in the 1880s to sell a particular type of tomato that when you sliced it and you looked inside, the seed cavities were teeny tiny and that you could, if you looked at it just the right way, say, wow, that tomato is like a slab of steak. So that really was just more of, a, of how meaty and solid it was. Um, I'm sure many have gone to a farmer's market and got the perfect round red tomatoes and cut them and there's a big core and all the seeds are around that core. And if you try to make a sandwich out of it, the whole inside falls out and you end up with the tomato equivalent of an onion ring. And it's terrible. So, yeah. so the, so the beefsteak <laughs> tomato is the antidote to the onion ring tomato. It is when you get your, your burger or your grilled cheese will be entirely covered. They come in uh, heart shapes. They come in plum or paste shapes. Uh, they go all the way from the size of a pea to two to three pounds. They can have smooth shoulders or ridged shoulders. They can be the ugliest thing in the farmer's market because the bottom of it is all creased and folded because the flower didn't come off just right. So in terms of official designations, there's probably globe, which is round, oblate, which are the big flat ones, deep globe are more of an oval, and then you get plum or paste, 
and you know you get self-explanatory like pear or uh, plum tomatoes that are smaller. But really, there's so many different morphological categorizations, and then you get into the fact that the flesh color interacts with the skin color to give it the color that you call it. So if you were to take a, a, a Whopper, which is a red tomato, and a brandywine, which is a pink, and you cut them in half and put them face up on the plate, they'd look identical. The difference is the Whopper or the big boy or the better boy has yellow skin, which gives the, makes the tomato look scarlet. The brandy wine has clear skin, um, but you've got green flesh, orange flesh, yellow flesh, yellow flesh with red swirls, green flesh with purple swirls. You've got distinct stripes on the outside. So really in, in this white, there are tomatoes that are essentially paper white or ivory. Um, when you start understanding, and all of this is governed by dominance and recessive traits. And so what you do when you cross variety A with variety B, some of the traits from variety A will be dominant or recessive. And you start learning some of this stuff. So you, I'm at the point I could actually now design and create a tomato that looks like what we wanted to create. Uh, you could say, Craig, make me a heart-shaped purple tomato with potato leaf foliage that has white variegation on it. And I can say, okay, I know exactly what two tomatoes I can do to cross together to have that be a possibility. And then it's like sorting for a needle um, in a haystack to try to find it because it may be the Punnett square thing. 25% of 25% of 25% of 25% may be exactly what you're looking for. Um, right. So that really is the different types. And we haven't even gotten into the fact that, like I said earlier, um, they can go all the way from very, very tart to very, very sweet, but then pick up nuances such as smokiness, fruitiness, blandness, you know, the dreaded spitter, the one that you take a bite out of at a tomato tasting, and you have to politely bend over the table and spit it out because it's just a bad tomato. It's just not to your liking. One more element to make it more complex and set up more ch chats we can have about this are that your taste buds and my taste buds and my wife's taste buds and my mom's taste, they're all going to be different. So my sweet mm -hmm. tomato may be your tart tomato, which means this is a lifelong obsession because you just dig for answers and learn more and more. And that leads you to more questions, which leads you to more projects. So yeah, I enjoy this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, It's endlessly fascinating. Now I was doing research for the previous episode of this podcast, which was on uh, molecular mixology. And ah. I, uh, in trying to explain what molecular mixology was, I came across a chef named Heston Blumenthal. He is based in the UK. And as I was scrolling through his Wikipedia page, I came across a study that he was a part of called Differences in Glutamic Acid and Five Ribonucleotide Contents Between Flesh and Pulp of Tomatoes and the Relationship with Umami Taste. Yes. I, I actually was just reading last night uh, some Wikipedia entries about the whole umami thing, uh, which is glutamate, which is, we just finished reading Bill Bryson's book about the body. Great book, very entertaining. And he talks about uh, it's not just sweet, salty, bitter, whatever the four tastes, but there's umami and then there's a whole host of nuances in between. So yeah, we have mm -hmm. varying ability to pick up these. Um, you know, I just remember when I'm a kid, my mother went and got a bottle of uh, accent, which is MSG, which you then sprinkle all over your burgers, your steaks or whatever. Um, so uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, there are still tons of research being done on tomatoes because not all of the answers, 
not even all the questions have been asked. And that really what you just referred to as a question that somebody decided to ask, what is it? How does this work? What's in there? Right, right. And well, I think the the tomato and, and this, I think, brings us to a perfect place to start talking about the Bloody Mary, because when I approach a cocktail, you know, let's say let's say I were called upon to design a particular cocktail. You know, one one of the ways I go about doing that is by looking at all of the various aspects that would come out to a balance in a successful cocktail situation, right? In an unsuccessful situation, all of these elements would be discordant. One element would be pulling in one direction. The other elements would be pulling in completely different directions. And we would have a cocktail or a flavor profile that would seem discordant or just not to work. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I think of balance in a cocktail, you obviously have to think about things like the five tastes or the five primary tastes, sweet, sour, uh, salty, uh, bitter. bitter and yeah. umami. Yeah. And I think the cool thing about tomatoes is that if you were to take a big, huge bite out of a particularly flavorful tomato and you really sat there and thought about it, you could probably pull out each one of those five primary tastes on your tongue. Is is that accurate or, you know, like in, in the right ballpark? No, I think you could. So a few things about tastings is one of the, I think one of the most important things about, um, doing an assessment that you describe is doing it blind. The reason is we as human beings tend to eat with our eyes and we have these expectations born out of nostalgia, born out of expectations, born out of how a grocery store has taught us how to eat over the years. Um, I had, I'm sure many of us had a mother that she would put the tomatoes in the fridge. And I've talked to people who love that flavor And to me, a tomato that's been refrigerated tastes like it's been partially turned into um, sauce that has a terrible texture to it, but it is tied into nostalgia. So anybody who likes that probably thought, wow, it was a Sunday afternoon and grandparents and mom and dad got in a car and we drove to the country and we got tomatoes and we came home and they put them in the fridge and then we had a cookout. And what a nice night it was because mom took those tomatoes out, sliced them, we put them on burgers. That's the flavor I am looking for. Um, I've been selling seedlings for 20 years, and one of the most frequently asked questions are, I want a tomato that tastes like a tomato when I was a child. So we have this, you know, smells and flavors, and of course the two of those are intimately connected to each other, are so tied into memory and nostalgia. Now, visual, so I've, I used to have people come to the house and say, oh, my family will only eat red tomatoes. You can only sell me a red tomato. So I'd sell them their red tomato, and I'd go, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you a purple one. I'm going to give you a green one. I'm going to give you a white one. Within five years, I want the I want the Russell Stover box. I want you to give me one of every type of tomato you got because it was so much fun. The part that's missing to me is I want to sit there. We used to do tomato palooza in Raleigh. We'd have 250 types of tomatoes all separated by color. About 300 people would come and taste them. We weren't blindfolded. That's the missing piece. If you were to sit down with a yellow, white, purple, green, red tomato and not know what you were eating color-wise, then you could tease out which one of these are salty, which one of them are bitter, which one of them have umami. Because your mind, the brain, which is this incredible machine that can fill in the blanks, does us a disservice. We look at a red tomato and we say, that's going to taste acidic. We look at a pink tomato and say, that's going to taste pink. And it, that may be how it comes across to us. So um, 
yes, I think what you're describing is just promising, fascinating, and really needs to be done to take all of this that we're talking about to the next step in terms of synthesizing, and this is where my chemistry comes in. Yeah, some, some taste and aromas cancel, but some of them will enhance each other. It's the synergistic approach. So what are the synergies mm -hmm. between the perfect tomato juice and the other ingredients of the Bloody Mary to make it sing? Right. And to be honest, uh, one of the things that I did in preparing for this, and I, I'm, I'm not done uh, doing this project, it, the project was I, I sat down one day, I didn't have anything on my plate for the rest of the afternoon, and I just went through online and then through my various cocktail books in, in my personal library, and I cataloged in a spreadsheet every Bloody Mary recipe. Um, as you might imagine... They're very different from one another. Yeah. Uh, and so the way that I broke it down, let me let me explain the way I broke it down because I think this could help our conversation. What I did is I basically looked at a Bloody Mary recipe and I said, okay, the common elements of these recipes seem to be that each one contains tomato juice, vodka, some sort of acid, usually from a citrus, um, and then some sort of Worcestershire sauce. Uh, so that would be, for all intents and purposes, our umami characteristic. Um, and those were the four elements. Now, spice is also an element that is pretty universal across Bloody Marys, but there is just too much variety in the spice world for that to be a useful aspect early on in the game. I think when you're developing your Bloody Mary, I think... You want to get to a place where you're happy and then find that perfect element of spice that's going to kick it over the top. I don't think you want to start with the spice in the Bloody Mary. That's just my instinct. So I didn't in this spreadsheet. And, you know, probably the statistic that best encapsulates the immense variety of Bloody Mary recipes out there is I also quantified the volume of each ingredient and, and, and tabulated the overall volume because when you're cont uh, contemplating things like glassware, how many pieces of ice that you're going to put in your glass that is going to displace a certain amount of liquid in your recipe, this becomes important. And the, the smallest by volume uh, Bloody Mary recipe is three ounces. And the largest, uh, although it is admittedly like <laughs> a sort of heap and helping, it self-identifies as a heap and helping of a Bloody Mary, is about 16 or 17 ounces. So when you're trying to bounce around between something that is three ounces and something that is 17 ounces and everywhere in between, you know, I, th I, think, I think basically what that tells me is that, you know, everybody has a Bloody Mary that they like. Uh, and yet, I don't think anybody can quite articulate what they like about it or why they like that. So that's why I think I'm, I'm being so explicit about going about this. And I think this would be a great time to talk about whether or not there are juicing tomatoes versus eating tomatoes, just like there are juicing oranges versus eating oranges. And if there's anything we can learn about either the history or the process of juicing a tomato that can tell us something about how to use tomato juice in a Bloody Mary. Yeah. Well, you know, boy, you just, uh, the scientist me just went nuts with everything you were just talking about because <laughs> I'm writing here and I've got written down vodka, neutral spirit, but flavor elements tomato juice, which of course is what we're talking about the most. And this is where to me, the sky is the limit. 
the color of the tomato. So a white Bloody Mary, what would people think of that? You, you know, I've got a great, very tart tomato named Dwarf Mr. Snow. You juice that, you're going to have white tomato juice. Um, the acidity, mm -hmm. lemon, lime, orange. Um, and I, I, I would, even though Worcestershire sauce is common, I would almost separate that out initially and just think about the interplay of the first three between the quality of the vodka, the nature of the tomato juice, and uh, the acid. Um, because if, if your acidity, well, so maybe we'll get this out of the way right now. The USDA did a study back in the 60s that looked at several hundred types of tomatoes of all shapes, sizes, and color. And the pH range of essentially all tomatoes is extremely narrow. So the other complicating factor, therefore, is sugar. And in those tomatoes that people claim are low acid, it's the same acidity, but it's like German wine. You are covering up that acid with a with a boatload of sugar in it. And so um, we've been talking about this backwards all the time. And, you know, people freak out. I can't eat that red tomato because it's acidic, but I can eat the pink one. It's like you got a placebo effect or something else going on there because these tomatoes are equally acidic. However, you may be having a reaction to pigment. You may be just telling yourself that this is giving you a stomachache, blah, 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 blah. Um, but back to what you're saying, um, so, you know, one of the things that I did find out in doing a little research, it sounds like tomato juice was first uh, made in 1917 in uh, Indiana because someone who owned a hotel restaurant ran out of orange juice and they decided to serve somebody tomato juice and it caught on and it, and it went nuts from there. So to me, the common uh, factor in tomato juice really is just pulverizing the flesh but eliminating the skins and the seeds. And, and that makes sense to me because then you're getting into textural issues and uh, you don't want little things curling up in your mouth and getting stuck in your teeth. Um, as far as the, one of the things I've not really thought much about, they, you know, they talk about food mills, Victoriana strainers and things like that, which separate the skin and the seeds away from the flesh and you can make really quick work of it. Tomato juice can separate. I've made some juice before and if you let it sit, they're 92% water. And so you're going to have the separation. It's like blood plasma, only it's tomato juice. You're going to have the separation of that clear layer. When I can my tomatoes, they're packed full. But then after they sit there for a few months, your can is, is half filled with tomato flesh and half filled with water. My view is you want something fine because I don't know if anybody's, this is where your expertise comes in. Does anybody ever refer to the textural aspect of a Bloody Mary in terms of a viscosity, in terms of a mouthfeel? And is there an advantage to going as smooth as possible? Or do some people seek a little bit of texture in their Bloody Mary? Oh, 100%. Uh, you know, <laughs> that gets into a sort of uh, logistical question of like, well, do you do you want your chunky Bloody Mary? Uh, or do you want something that is that you could almost sort of like sort of down as one of those hair of the dog situations? Because blood, the Bloody Mary has been traditionally one of those brunch time and also hair of the dog cocktails. And, you know, some people tend to like to to down those in, in a pretty aggressive manner. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the viscosity uh, is certainly a thing, obviously. Um, 
you don't walk through the supermarket and see tomato a ton of tomato juice that is sitting there as 50-50 flesh and water, uh, which means that there are certain stabilizers used to keep the ingredients in suspension. Um, and so, yeah, there, there are certainly textural questions with tomato juice. Um, do you happen to know if there's one particular tomato breed or type that is sort of factory farmed, then crushed using massive equipment and then, you know, used to pump out all of these, you know, all the V8s and all the tomato juices that we see on the supermarket shelves? One thing that I found in doing some reading last night is that a lot of commercial tomato juice that is made from tomato paste. Mm-hmm. And it's then, it's like, you know, the can of orange juice that you buy in the frozen food section, you come home and you, you know, you blend it up and you make your OJ. Sounds like that has been one of the probably money-saving, cost-saving type of things that have been made. Um, but traditionally, I would think that there are tomatoes that have been designated as processing tomatoes. Typically, they're Roma types, San Marzano, Roma itself, that have been measured to have a higher ratio of uh, flesh to water, You know, probably within a narrow range because... Generally, tomatoes are about 92% water and 8% flesh and other things. Um, The problem is you end up with flavor issues in many of the paste or processing tomatoes. They tend to grow on short plants. They yield extremely heavily. And what that does is it makes it very difficult for the photosynthesis factory in the plant to create enough chemistry to make short-growing tomatoes delicious. And mm. so, um, you know, Roma, nobody ever goes to a grocery store and grabs a Roma off the shelf and bites and says, my God, that's the best tomato I've ever eaten. It's for roasting. And what, hap- what, what helps the flavor on these a lot of times is the concentration in the oven, whether it's oven roasting, which brings up another interesting thing. What would happen if you were to roast tomatoes and then pulverize them? But that's, we'll leave that for uh, another part of this if you want to get there. Um, my view is any fine eating tomato that is uh, meaty. We talked about a beefsteak type, uh, very small seed locules. Um, I use those to can. I use those to make sauce out of because I found the traditional sauce tomatoes just lack the flavor. And so, you know, a brandywine or a Cherokee purple or a Lilianzella heirloom or any of these big meaty beefsteak types would be spectacular, I think, to juice and then use that juice Um, So, again, the question here is, do you go for a traditional variety that's been used because that's what's always been used, or is it time to push the envelope? And is the Bloody Mary culture, do they need to, to now catch up to the heirloom gardener? And that's what I'm finding is happening a lot, is the gardeners tend to be the tip of the spear. We're out there growing all these varieties but the news isn't getting out because, you know, chefs and restaurants may be a little traditional or the grocers are traditional or the farmers are traditional. So this is a way to take this forward. You know, one of the things I, th- I thought that I would see by now, because I've been, I've been growing heirloom since 1986. Um, why can't I go to some grocery stores and see cans of tomatoes by color? Aunt Ruby's Green, Cherokee Purple, Anna Russian. Kellogg's breakfast. If somebody got that idea, they would make a fortune on it, but nobody has gone there yet. So I think following on from that, you could see a range of heirloom tomato by color tomato juices 
that would have descriptions on the label saying this one tends toward uh, a tartness. This one has more umami. This one has a little bit of bitterness in it. And so um, to me, this is something that can happen and can be created. I'm not the guy to do it, but I think it's a great idea if um, to pursue, but, but all the testing that has to happen initially, which would be loads of fun. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, you know, I, despite the fact that I've, you know, synthesized over 40 Bloody Mary recipes, you know, I think what we're discovering is that there is still a lot more testing to be done here before we can come to anything that resembles conclusive. Uh, and I, I think what you just said about, um, you know, kind of this, this thought experiment of like, what would a supermarket look like if we could walk down the tomato aisle or tomato juice aisle and, and be able to sort by flavor and color? I, I I think that's a great answer to a question that I sent you. And just so people know, I'll read the question. I said, imagine you had to select a tomato juice from a wall of different options. How would you go about identifying which type you'd most like to drink? And I I think that answer kind of sums it up. Um, Is there anything else that kind of follows along with that in your in your head? Um, Yeah. Well, a few things. You get supply chain issues in that um, you could come up with something that's just spectacular, but because it's not easy to grow or because it's not profitable for the farmer, you'd almost have to create some kind of an infrastructure. And, you know, when Epic Tomatoes first came out, I was contacted by grocery stores and different people that wanted to embark on a project. Let's bring the Cherokee Purple to a grocery store, this and that. And like many things in life, you know, leads appear, but many ideas pop up. But people in general are not very good implementers. So these things dry up. That's fine. I generate a lot of ideas myself. But I'm kind of here to help and advise anyone who would be interested to think about flavors of tomatoes, whether it's sending them seeds, whether it's growing out varieties and doing some detailed taste testing. You know, I feel like I'm an untapped resource having tasted 4,000 different types of tomatoes. And I'm not a super taster. I've done the little test, but I am a pretty acute taster. So I roast my own coffee. You know, I'm I'm, I'm as crazy about coffee as I am about dark chocolates and I'm about wine and I am about beer and all this. I think when people love to hunt for nuances, it just becomes a life pursuit, right? And I think the same thing here. Um, but I can imagine the incredible popularity of somebody finding a, a, a green tomato juice that tasted incredibly delicious and they didn't have fear of other color. Um Maybe we can create a new acronym for that. And they'd come home and they'd serve this drink to their friends and it would be bright green. And they'd be like, man, this thing is so good. What is it? And they'd say, it's a Bloody Mary. And they'd say, my brain did not tell me that's what it was. It's almost the opposite of the, the clear Pepsi issue where it didn't sell because nobody wants a clear cola. You know, so... One little story here. At the end of last year, I went to the market and they had all of these green flesh tomatoes, Cherokee greens. They were selling at like $10 a box. So I bought 25 pounds of them and we canned seven quarts. Over the winter, we made green tomato bisque. It was so interesting looking because it could have been um, like a salsa verde. You could have been having a to- tomatillo salsa. But when you took a spoon of it, your mouth just screamed in neon letters, tomato great tomato. So in a way, this idea is a little ahead of its time because you actually have to train people or retrain people how to drink or how to eat or how to think of their food. If you get people to play with their food, I think they'll be a lot more healthier the way they eat and they'll 
leave themselves open to trying new and different things that will, you know, in times of COVID where people are looking for ways to bring a smile to their face, something as simple as cooking with weird looking food, making something new, just bring a little bit of joy to every day. Um, you know, that's kind of one of the, why our discussion is just one of the ways to do it. Do some experimenting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm behind that as well. And you know, when you when you mention you know kind of the the the, cr- the clear Pepsi situation, one of the things that makes me think of is yeah, you know, there's there's certainly a risk uh, when you take something that people are used to, right? The Bloody Mary, tomato juice, mm-hmm. uh, something that would be considered a constant in life from when a person was born to the day they die, and then you decide that you're just going to mess with that. Yeah. Well, first of all, they're uncomfortable. Because all of a sudden, <laughs> the question of uh, like believability comes in. It's like, oh no, it's it, this is tomato juice. It's just like no other tomato juice you've ever seen. It's like, well, how do I believe you? Do I trust you? We want to have this relationship with our bartenders. Right. We want to trust that they're giving us what we expect when we order off the menu. Yes. And so what I like about the process of uh, sort of breaking the Bloody Mary, which is yeah, break it. Well, you know, we'll call this, we'll call this breaking bloody, right? Yeah, like breaking yeah. bad, breaking bloody. We're trying to b- break the Bloody Mary here. And what I like about that is, um, personally, I've always been comfortable with discomfort, whether it's yeah. myself, uh, or, or whether it's, you know, in, in a interpersonal transaction, I've, I'm, I'm not really phased if somebody is uncomfortable. And I think that probably is, is, is not necessarily an attribute in all situations, but what I do like about it in flavor situations is that it almost always presents an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that opportunity is to kind of reconfigure how a person's brain works when they walk up to something and try to taste it. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the opportunity here. The chore is, well, we got to break the Bloody Mary and then see how many different ways we can reconfigure it and if we like any of them. And then I think that the potential value is if we can get people on board with some of it, then they can take the experience of walking into a bar and getting a bloody, a complete, perfectly clear Bloody Mary uh, that wasn't centrifuge separated, yeah. right? It was just made with perfectly clear tomato juice. We can take that experience or that person can take that experience and then try to apply it to other aspects of their life. And yeah. I, I think uh, that what that creates is much more of a Zen mm-hmm. sort of embodied in the moment way of walking through the world and approaching flavors. And yeah. I, I personally yeah. can't uh, get enough of that that opportunity. Yeah. Well, you know, there used to be a product called Jello One Two Three, separated into three layers. Um, what if you were to bump up the viscosity of tomato juices, and you get you use three different colors of tomato juice, and you pour it slowly, so that you give somebody a glass, and you have a red layer, an orange layer, and a yellow layer at the top, and just let them play with that. And each of those layers could have a different flavor nuance. Um, anyway, I'm just thinking out of the box here, but <laughs> well, no, that's a that's a very specific type of cocktail. It's called the Pousse Cafe, P O P O U S S E, as in Pousse. It's a French yeah. term to push. Yeah, uh, literally means pushing your coffee, right? So right. after the coffee course, you would tend to have a Pousse Cafe, which is really not a cocktail. It is, as you mentioned, uh, sort of like layered cordials and liqueurs, right, right, right. and uh, it's, it's executed exactly in the way that you said, using specific gravity to right. set up this juxtaposition of yeah. colors and and flavors. So, uh, yeah. 
uh, and see, this is why I love these conversations because that wasn't on my mind. Clarification was certainly on my mind, but definitely through mechanical means. And now we have a potentially non-mechanically clear, clear Bloody Mary, as well as a Puskafe Bloody Mary. So, um, yeah, I, it, I, I love it to death. Call it Mary, Mary, yeah, Mary one, two, three. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, well, I, to, to wrap us up in this segment of the interview, I, I just, uh, you, you did mention before that you're more of a beer and a wine guy. Um, yeah. but I, I, I wonder, uh, if you have any thoughts on the Bloody Mary in general, um, and if you have, uh, a particular, uh, Bloody Mary that would be like one that you would really enjoy drinking. Um, so being not a terribly experienced cocktail drinker, I should love Bloody Marys. And what this talk is going to do is going to send me out to try some um, because I have had a few few in my life and they taste fine. I, I remember when I used to work at the grocery store during break time, I would have a can of V8 or a can of tomato juice. So I, I, I not only like the flavor of it and the umami of it, but I like the texture of it. It's like you've got something in there that's of substance and you're enjoying it. So uh, this is going to, this is going to send me off to do some experimenting. Um, I can't really judge good or bad at this point. Uh, I mean, like all drinks or like anything that I eat or drink, I love balance. Um, I love interest. So visual interest would be good. Complexity of flavor would be good. I like to drink something. So when I drink beer, it's a double stout. It's, it's huge. I, you know, when I drink wine, it's a Zinfandel or a big Oaky Chardonnay. So I, my taste buds need to kind of be assaulted. And so mm. the Bloody Mary that I would enjoy would be one that kind of scrambled my taste wires a little bit and maybe think and ponder. And, uh, you know, food to me is a celebration. It's so many Americans just eat because they have to. And we should be eating because we love to and with people that we love. And, you know, and eating and drinking should be just an opportunity to learn about what you're eating and drinking or learning from each other. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to... I wish I were more optimist that this can happen quickly, but I think this is a way we need to move because things are a little dicey out there right now. <laughs> yes, they are. But you know what? At least uh, at least a lot of people have been getting on the home gardening train. So yes. if there's one one uh, sort of beneficent aspect of that. I think I think the home gardening trend is it. Yes. So, Craig, this has been amazing. Uh, I feel like we may have some follow-up emails in the in the weeks and months to come as we're both able to process some of this. But uh, I just wanted to see if there was anything you wanted to uh, wrap up with before we jump into the lightning round here. No, I, this you know this is one of the most enjoyable and most insightful discussions I've had because, as you can imagine, over the last five years, I get people are all extremely nice, and I get a lot of the same questions. What I love is being pushed into a different corner to really think about my answers and to create and to, you know, come up with ideas because that's that's kind of one of the things. So thank you so much for just, uh, you know, tickling the brainstem a little bit there and uh, pushing me out of my comfort zone. Totally. Well, it's what we're all about here and uh, we'll just keep on, keep on doing it. So uh, into the lightning round we go. Yeah. Uh, since you're into the beer and wine space, and which is certainly where I started as well, um, I'll tweak the first one here. Uh, what is your favorite beer or wine that you've had recently and uh, what did you love about it? Um, so it would have to be Oscar Blues 1050. Um, it's like pouring a can of motor oil into your car. Um, my wife and I actually split one. What I like about it, it's huge. It's, uh, 
it's flavorful. It's got coffee. It's got chocolate. It's got everything. Um, uh, you know, if I would have answered a cocktail, it would have been a Cape Cod. I'm a New Englander or uh, Tom okay. Collins because that's what uh, I got sick on when I went to a party when I was way too young. <laughs> but I, oh. but only because I drank like ten of them and I was 16 years old. Uh, but I like the lime refreshing aspect of a Tom Collins, and I just love cranberry juice. Uh, so I'm a big Cape Cod fan. Yeah, you're certain. You're certainly in. I mean, anybody who enjoys tomatoes as much as you do would, I would assume, would be into the brightness, into yes. the acidity, into yeah. the yeah. So that I, I love, I love the uh, the cranberry connection too. I mean, yeah. like what what other berry slash fruit out there has uh, such a dynamic uh, interplay between bitter and sour? I can't really think oh. of many. I, but I do confess when I used to travel to England a lot for my job, my wife would always say, bring a bottle of Kahlua home. So I became a, a big fan of the evening uh, white Russian just because it was oh, soothing yeah. and comforting and absolutely delicious. So there you go. For sure. All right. If you were a drink ingredient of any sort, what would you be <laughs> and why? Well, I think it would be so cool to be the ice. <laughs> oh, it's really a bad, bad, bad part. Oh, man. I know. I know I had to. It's the first thing that popped. Um, well, of course, I think I would have to be uh, the tomato juice and the Bloody Mary because it would be me being true to my passion and getting to investigate it from the inside and see how it all works. Right. And it is if there's one ingredient in the Bloody yeah. Mary that is yeah. sort of like the titular uh, component, it's certainly the tomato juice. If you could have a drink yeah. with anyone in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What yeah. would you drink? Just uh, just give us a little picture. Yeah. Okay. So I would have a Cape Cod with my grandfather at Cape Cod. The reason being his family came over uh, in the 1600s and settled in Cape Cod, um, moved to Rhode Island after that. But he became he just became my friend. And when I was two or three years old, he would take me into his garden and he planted the seed of the love of gardening in me. when I was very, very young. And his tomato that he grew was the first one that I ate. So Walter was a cantankerous, difficult fellow that most family members thought was a pain in the neck. He and I just loved the heck out of each other. So he was the one. Um, we saw something in each other. Maybe that curiosity thing, that seeker thing, you know, he thought education was so important, learning, curiosity. And he was the only one in my family, really, that stressed all those things for me. Nice. Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, my grandparents uh, grew up right next door to me, or mm. it's rather other way around. I grew up right next door to my grandparents, and um, they also had a very large garden. And one of the uh, one of the things I remember as a kid is going out with my grandmother and picking them off the off the vine. So for me, probably the most intense sensory memory that I have associated with tomatoes is the smell of that stem when it snaps. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, and then she would bring the tomatoes up, wash them, and she would immediately for herself, um, slice one up, put it in a little shallow bowl, and then eat it with uh, sort of a um, like homemade version of Italian salad dressing. Oh, man. Sounds great. Yeah. yeah so yeah. the grandparent connection is strong and uh I, I think I think we're all sort of lucky you know kind of going back to the the heirloom seeds and the, the uh directive to preserve these flavors for the future I th I think uh that heritage in that respect is really important to not only the tomato world but uh 
to the culinary world in general? Yeah. You know, my dad was in his seventies, maybe five years before he passed on from a stroke, he caught the heirloom bug and I was sending him seedlings and he became known in Pawtucket, Rhode Island as the heirloom tomato guy. And so we had a hobby that we could share later in life that he just valued like crazy. And, uh, and those are the memories that you keep with you forever, actually. For sure. For sure. Um, so let's talk about a common or traditional drink ingredient that you've never tasted and maybe why that might be. Um, yeah. And it's the name of it always fascinated me and I've just never gone there. It's Angostura bitters. Is that it? And yeah. just the word bitters, um, it just doesn't sound so hot. So I've actually never tasted it, never tried it. Um, so I wouldn't even exactly know what one would use it in, but apparently it's been around for a long time and it's very, very popular. Angostura is a fascinating company, one of two bitters companies to actually survive prohibition, uh, oh. partially because it was located in Trinidad, so therefore not uh, a U.S. situation. But um, yeah, they're, they're a fascinating story and uh, sort of goes back to the uh, medicinal uh, the medicinal side of things with uh, taking the bark from the Angostura tree, which wow. is uh, you know a medicinal tree in, in I believe, Central America. So yeah, check that out next time. You, next time you get bored on Wikipedia, check out Angostura bitters. They're fascinating. Well, you know, I have to admit to loving Moxie, the soda Moxie. And most mm -hmm. people think it mm -hmm. tastes like metal filings, but I grew up with it. And that has a very mm -hmm. bitter um, characteristic to it. I think it's gentian root that they um, that mm -hmm. they make that out of. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. And that is usually uh, the primary bittering agent in bitters. So uh, once we're done with this, I will, uh, I'll, get, I'll get your shipping details and we'll send you uh, some of the bitters flavors that we make here at Modern Bar okay. and Maybe that can be your sure. entree. Yeah, yeah. So what is an unusual or controversial view or belief that you hold in the flavor world, we'll say? Not, not necessarily spirits or cocktails related, but like what about just in the flavor world or perhaps in the tomato world? Um, so... What, what fascinates me is um, the, bio the individual biological impact on certain very popular flavors. So I am a cilantro, tastes like dirty, soapy dishwater person. My wife is a cilantro, tastes like heaven person, uh, citrus, orange. And, and so it's just the realization that, um, you know, the thing that asparagus will react with certain people different way, the fact that I learned uh, not too long ago that the coal crops, whether it's broccoli, cauliflower, a third of the population finds it inedibly bitter. A third of the population finds it okay. A third of the population finds it sweet. And it has to do with whether you get the genes from both parents, one parent or no parent for that bittering characteristic. So I think this would apply very interestingly to the uh, cocktail and uh, spirits world because you've got all of that individual preference playing against um, what the bartenders are trying to create. And, uh, you know, mm. you can make something up for someone and they think they may love it and it just could hit them totally the wrong way just based on their genetics. Yeah, you certainly that is part of the art of being a good bartender is being able to kind of work through those things in uh, in a way that doesn't feel like a an interrogation right. with your guest. Uh, but one could certainly speculate that uh, there would be a, a, a time 
down the road where you know we're all sitting on the the USS Enterprise or some, whatever starship we've migrated to in the deep future, <laughs> and the bartender has a little heads up display on whatever yeah. you know glasses they're wearing that kind of identifies said guest as a super taster with a uh, with the cilantro gene, uh, and that yeah. would be uh, just uh, tremendously handy in avoiding some of these situations. But uh, I think until then we're going to have to deal with uh, with the art of bartending until the science catches. Up. I guess one question I have is with the growth of microbrews, with uh, is there enough room? Because it seems whiskeys are just blowing out of the water. It, it just seems like maybe it's just where America is and they're looking for ways to just find new and interesting things. It seems like, like heirloom tomatoes, it is so vast out there what people can drink, um, mm-hmm. it's, which is a good thing, I guess. Unless it leads to consolidation and you know the small guys get crushed and you see really good stuff disappearing because uh, it just isn't profitable for them anymore. Yeah, I think one of the things that you'll see if you pay attention is uh, certainly agave uh, mezcals uh, mm-hmm. have been the most one of the highest growth categories recently because people are realizing, you know the beautiful flavors that can develop in an agave pina if it's left alone for almost 20 years, right? We talk about grapes growing on a vine and gathering the terroir of a region in a different year, which is why different vintages can be very popular for, um, you know, one year can be a good year. The next year can be a totally bad year. Well, imagine that effect amplified over two decades that an agave plant grows and it just accrues and accrues and accrues all this stuff. So people realize that that happened, that category blew up. Now there's sort of this focus. Uh, I think the rum world is is Mm -hmm. getting really into agricole rums and open fermented things like um, Haitian clarins. And so those are experiencing a big uh, surge right now. And so, yeah, basically whenever people look and see something in the spirit space, usually it's American. And usually we're looking at some culture that we haven't really had a lot of experience with, like Haiti, like Oaxaca, uh, if we're looking to China, um, like the different regional baijos that they create that are getting, you know, finally starting to take off. Um, So I think anytime you have a curious American uh, consumer base that looks somewhere and finds something that is just so different um, and and wonderful in, in the diversity of flavors that there's going to be interest now. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, you're, you're right about those things not always hitting due to the, the commodification, the right. supply chain. But um, but yeah, I, I think I, I think you would be really uh, blown away by some of this, uh, the stuff that's happening, especially in the agave and the cane spirit space. So cool. if, there, if you're going to do any research, I'd yeah. recommend those, too. Good thing I'm only 64. Got lots of, lots of time to experiment. <laughs> For sure. Uh, well, Craig, this has been tremendous. I really appreciate you taking so much time to speak with me and to um, to to humor the picky, granular nature of some of these questions and also some of the ambiguity that we both have to to face in attempting to answer them. Um, can you just give us your basic? digital contact info in case yeah. anybody wanted to follow you on social media, check out Epic Tomatoes, mm-hmm. um, all that. Sure. Uh, email's easy. NC Tomato Man, all one word at gmail.com. Uh, my website is craiglehulier.com and I'm an active blogger. Sometimes I'm a lazy blogger, but most recently I'm, I'm becoming a very active blogger because there's a lot to talk about. My most uh, active area is Instagram. I actually left Facebook and Twitter because I just have been disenfranchised with lots of things around those. 
But I find Instagram's a great teaching tool. So I actually go live from my yard here every Friday, 3 Eastern for 45 minutes. And I do a demo. I mean, it's really raw. It's me with a hat on, sweating out in the garden. But then I answer everybody's questions. And we have a fun 45 minutes. And that's pretty much it. I have a newsletter. People can email me. If they want a signed copy of my book, they can email me. Um, my wife is making masks right now. And lots of people are uh, getting those from us. So it's just... Um, I just want to make myself available to all gardeners to help them succeed. And that pretty much is the essence of what I do and why I do it. Beautiful. Uh, so for everybody listening, we'll have links to, uh, of course, Epic Tomatoes and to Craig's Instagram and to everything you'll need uh, over on the show notes page for this episode over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. Uh, as you heard, uh, this is sort of an active experiment. So if anybody has a favorite Bloody Mary recipe that they want to send to me so that I can include it in this spreadsheet, which will, at the conclusion of this project, if it ever concludes, be publicly available for anyone to check out, then go ahead, send that to me and my team over at podcast at modernbarcart.com. And uh, Craig, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. It's just been tremendous. Oh, oh thank you. This was, this was a highlight. I loved it. Thanks. Have a great day, Rick. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, tomato and flavor insights courtesy of Craig LaHoulier, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2020.